Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Let's pray as we prepare to read God's word. Father, you said in your word that, that you look upon those, that your attention is on those who tremble at your word. Thank you so much, God, that we get to read it now. God, I pray that you'd help us, help us to remember these truths, Lord. You said in your word that all of your scripture is breathed out by you and it's profitable and it's good for us. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to realize that, to believe what you say and to love every piece of your word. God, please be with us as we read it and be with us as we study it together. We love you, Lord. We commit this time to you. God, we need your help. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come through the book of Deuteronomy together, we're at chapter 14. And we're going to go from, God willing, from verse 1 to verse 21. So if you would... Let's read this together. Verse 1. You are sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth you shall not eat any abomination these are the animals you may eat the ox the sheep the goat the deer the gazelle the roebuck the wild goat the ibex the antelope and the mountain sheep Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean. 
for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork and the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat, and all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now most of this passage that we just read are about dietary laws or food laws, what you can eat and what you cannot eat as Moses gives direction to the people of Israel as they get ready to move into the promised land. So most of it's about food laws, dietary laws. And there's a couple warnings there about uh, pagan rituals or some kind of pagan practices that he warns them not to participate in. So let me just mention a few, a few things about the structure of what we just read, and then hopefully we can get into why this is here. So the structure of what we just read in this passage, I want you to think about it. The, the beginning of this passage and the end of this passage on both sides, verse 1, verse 21, we get these warnings about these pagan practices. So just let me highlight that really quick. Verse 1, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your heads. And notice this phrase, for the dead. This is about pagan funeral practices. This is about pagan funeral rituals. This cutting yourself, making baldness on your forehead. And he tells, he tells Israel, Moses, or God through Moses here, tells Israel that the pagans might honor their dead in that way, but not you. You're going to be different than them. You're sons of the Lord your God. You're different than them. So he, he tells them, do not participate in this pagan funeral practice. Now, at the very end, verse 21, might have sounded strange to you. The very last sentence says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What an interesting command. Now, this is actually repeated two other times in the law. You can go find that on your own. And there's, there's evidence that this is some, again, this is some sort of pagan ritual that they would run into in the land of the Canaanites that they would use to worship their false gods. And God tells them through Moses here, not you. That's what the pagans do. That's how they do in their worship, not you. You're not to be like them. You're to be different from the world that's around you. Now, both of these commands about funeral practices and pagan worship to their God, and he said, you don't do it that way. Both of these remind me of Leviticus 18, verse 3. You remember Leviticus 18, verse 3? It says, according to the doings of the land of Egypt from where you came, you shall not do. 
And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. He said, you're not to be like these people from where you came, and you're not to be like these people where you're going. You're to be set apart. You're to be different. Don't do funerals like them. Don't worship your God the way they worship their false gods. Don't be like them. That's on both sides of our passage. Now, verse 3 gives us the command that really drives the, the, the majority of this passage. Look at it in verse 3. You shall not eat any abomination. Now again, that, that command about what you can eat, it drives most of what's in this passage. God is controlling their diet. Here's what you can eat. And here's what you can't eat. So verses 4 through 21 are just specific details of how to obey verse 3. You can eat these kind of animals that are on the land, but not these. You can eat these kind of of animals that that are in the sea, but not these. You can eat these kind of birds that are in the air, but not these. And it just gives you the details there in verses 4 through 21, which is the majority of our passage. Now, what I really want to do from this passage... You heard me pray it a moment ago. All scripture breathed out by God. It's very important. I would argue, I would argue that if you don't understand these food laws and how it relates to you, you're missing some um, some important things about the storyline of the entire Bible. So, so I want you to understand this. I want you to grasp it. And so, because of that, we're going to try to just get right to the point. Okay, just right to the 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 point of this this section. And the question that needs to be answered is this. What is the purpose of these food laws? Brothers and sisters, we just read it together. You read it in your Bible reading. What is the purpose of these food laws? The answer is this. God put dietary restrictions in Israel. Why? To keep his people separate from the world. In order to keep his people separate from the world. This, these dietary restrictions were one of many things that God set in place to keep Israel distinct from the nations around them, distinct from the world. Now, I want you to notice the answer that I'm giving you there, what's the purpose of these food laws? The answer that I'm giving you is not that certain foods are in, inherently good and, and, and virtuous to eat, And certain other foods are inherently evil or sinful to eat. That's not the answer. That's not what the scripture teaches us here. These laws are in place because they worked to keep Israel separate from the nations. Now, why should we understand them this way? And I want to give you five reasons, not too fast, but as quick as I can, five reasons of why you should think of the food laws in that way, keeping Israel separate from the nations. Are you ready? Five reasons. Number one is because of the commands that are surrounding the food laws in this section. So I just told you that. The majority is about the dietary restrictions, but on both ends you've got these commands about pagan practices. Well, that ought to drive you to think the way I'm encouraging you to think about these food laws. So let me try to explain that. Why not participate in the, in the funeral rituals in verse 1? Why not? Where well, it says in verse 1, You are the sons of the Lord your God. Be different. 
Don't be like them. Be separate from them. Don't, don't, um, don't participate in what they participate in. Be separate from them. That's the purpose. This is why they shouldn't participate in these funeral practices. Okay, second question. Why not participate in the ritual mentioned in verse 21? Boiling the, you know, the, uh, the animal in its mother's milk. Why, why not do that? Well, same thing. This is about separation. The pagan world is doing that, but you are to come out from them. That's what those passages teach us. You're to come out from them. You're to be different from the pagan world. And so, what about the stuff in the middle? What about the food laws? What's the answer there? The answer is, this is about separation from the nation, just like those other commands. That's what the food laws are about. So that's reason number one. Reason number two Take notice of the holiness bookends that we see. Again, verse 1 and 2 and verse 21. Notice the the language about holiness. Look at verse 2. For you are a people holy. Remember, holy, set apart, consecrated, different. You're set apart. That's what that word means. You're, You're a people holy to the Lord. You're set apart from the Lord. Holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, listen, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the way this whole thing starts with these dietary restrictions is you're a holy people. You're set apart, away from, out from all the nations of the earth. Makes you think that's what these food laws must be about. About separating them out from the nations of the earth. And that's how it ends too. Verse 21. Sort in the middle of verse 21. It says, um, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So the holiness bookends in this passage. You're holy. You're set apart. You're different. Out from all the nations of of the earth. Well, that's what the food laws right in the middle of this are all about. They're about the people of Israel being separate. Separation from all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's about their holiness. Now, third, third reason, I want to encourage you to think about the food laws in this way. Third reason, it's very clear from this passage we just read that it's not inherently sinful to eat a certain thing or virtuous to eat a certain thing. Like that, that's, It's clear from this passage it's, it's not inherently right or wrong morally good or bad to eat this over this okay now we see that we actually see that in the passage i want you to look at verse 21 again notice verse 21 says this you shall not eat anything that has died naturally and here it is listen you may give it to the sojourner who is within your town that that he may eat it or you may sell it to a foreigner. Did you catch that? It's totally fine for people to eat these things. It's not in the slightest sinful for humans to eat these things. It's just not okay for you, Israel. It's okay for them to eat. It's just not okay for you. You can sell it to the foreigner. It's just not okay for you to eat it. So it's not that the food itself is sinful to eat. It's just not okay for Israel. And that's why we have this language Verse 7, verse 10, and verse 9, it repeats it. It says it's unclean for you. Not for them, but it's unclean for you. Again, it's unclean for you. Not necessarily for everyone, 
but it's unclean for you. So this insinuates that the dietary restrictions were never about, well, which food is, sin, which food is sinful to eat and which food is, is, is not sinful to eat. It's never been about that. Uh, it, don't get me wrong. It was sinful if Israel disobeyed these commands, but it's not because of the nature of the food itself. You understand that? But it's because God is setting apart this people, and one of the ways he's doing that is using these dietary restrictions to keep them distinct from the nations. All right, number four, a fourth reason to think this way is really just practical. Practically speaking, this works. In fact, it works very, very well. Think about the social impact this had on the people of Israel as they attempted to keep these dietary laws. Most, most good social interaction is around, around the meal time, right? It's around the dinner table. You think how much this kept them separate from the nations just by keeping these dietary laws. Now, to help you understand that, I, I think if you just read through what they could eat and what they couldn't eat and think about them trying to function in the middle of that of, of you know, the, these uh, foreigners and how much that would cause the separation. I hope you understand that, but in case you need an example of it, I'll try to give you a modern-day example, okay? There are people today that still attempt to keep these dietary laws. Maybe you've heard of the Jewish kashrut, or you've probably heard people talk about uh, uh, keeping kosher. <clears throat> you've heard of this sort of thing, uh, of people trying to keep these food laws. Well, most of them talk about how difficult it is to keep these food laws, as they're trying to do, in our modern society. And in fact, I want to, I want to read to you uh, one example of somebody that's talking about, well, actually, they're trying to say it's not that difficult, but it's kind of funny what they say. They actually show that it is difficult. So listen to what they say. This is, this is a lady trying to keep these food laws today. People who do, this is what she says, and I quote, People who do not keep kosher often, often tell me how difficult it is to keep kosher. Actually, keeping kosher is not particularly difficult in and of itself. What makes it difficult to keep kosher is the fact that the rest of the world doesn't do so. I thought that was an interesting phrase. Everybody else isn't doing it. That's what makes it hard. Keep going. Keeping kosher only becomes difficult when you try to eat in a non-kosher restaurant, okay? Or at the home of a person who does not keep kosher. In those situations, your lack of knowledge about your host ingredients and food preparation techniques make it very difficult to keep kosher. And then listen to this takeaway, interesting takeaway she accidentally stumbled on. Some Jewish commentators have pointed out, however, that this may well have been part of what God had in mind to make it more difficult for us to socialize with those who do not share our religion. <laughs> so she, she's feeling that today. She's feeling that divide that if they keep these dietary restrictions, how it separates you from the nations. If you need a biblical example of that, I'd point you to Galatians 2.12 where Peter, you remember, and I shouldn't have been doing this at this time, but Peter began to, he was eating with the Gentiles at one time. He was eating with the nations, the Gentiles at one time. But then when those Jewish brethren came or those brethren from, from Jerusalem came, he began to separate himself and not eat with them anymore. So there's, there's these biblical 
examples of, as well of how this practically, these food laws practically would keep a separation between Israel and the nations. Now, last reason, number five, and this is really probably the most important one of why you should think this way, is the New Testament teaches us these things about the purposes of the food laws. Okay? So I'll share a couple passages that teach that. One is Mark chapter 7. This is verse 18 through 20. Listen to what this says. Mark chapter 7, verse 18 through 20. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Catch that. He declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And it goes on to say, because out of the heart of a man proceeds these evil things. So not, Jesus says, not what goes into a person, their food they eat, whatever. That's not what defiles a person. It just goes into their stomach. Okay? He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles a person, what comes out of their heart. And therefore, he declared all foods clean. Now, I want you to think about this. Did God make a big mistake in the Old Testament with these food laws, and then, and then Jesus comes along and corrects it? Is that what happened right here? And I hope you know the answer to that is absolutely not. The point was never, 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 never. We know this from Mark 7. The point was never that the food coming in could defile a person. That was never the point. The point was always about keeping Israel. God didn't make a mistake. These food laws had a purpose about keeping Israel distinct and separate from the nations. One more New Testament passage, and I'll just kind of, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but I just want to reference a few things from it. And this is, this is in Acts chapter 10. And let me tell you a little bit about the story in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, a Gentile, not a Jew, but a Gentile is praying. He's praying to God. A Gentile named Cornelius is praying. And in a vision, God tells this Gentile, I want you to send some people to Peter. He's going to tell you words by which you can be saved. I'm going to send, you, send some people to Peter. And so Cornelius sends to Peter three Gentiles. And it specifically tells us that, and that, that number three is actually important in the passage. But he sends three Gentiles. Now, just before these Gentiles arrive to Peter, just before that happens, God gives Peter a vision. And if you remember that vision, it was, it was this sheet let down and all these animals. And Peter hears in this vision, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter's, Peter's God, I've never, I, I've never eaten anything unclean like this before. And God tells him, what I've made clean, don't call unclean. What I've made clean, don't call unclean. And that vision happens to him, guess how many times? Three times. Three times it tells us. And then look at verse 19. If you're there, Acts chapter 10, either look at it or just listen. Verse 19 says, and while 
Peter was pondering the vision. He's thinking about the vision. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Don't call this unclean. You can eat. Don't call this unclean. Three times. And while he's pondering the vision, these three-time command not to call it unclean, it says this. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them. Now, Peter's interpretation of this vision that he got, we can find Peter's interpretation in verse 27. Listen, listen to this. And, and he talked with him. Peter talked with Cornelius. And he went in and he found many persons. So Peter goes into the house and he finds many Gentiles there. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That's that separation. The food laws causing that separation and other things, but, the, but specifically a separation. You know how unlawful it is for a Jew. Now, here I am. Here I am, Peter says, but you know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate or visit someone from another nation. And look at this. But God has shown me that I should not call any person. The vision was about food, but he says here, I should not call any person common or unclean. So clear things from Acts chapter 10. Food laws are not applicable under the new covenant, just like we see in Mark chapter 7. And Peter's interpretation of that is the food laws are done away with as a sign that Israel's no longer meant to be separated from the nations. Peter's interpretation is... It was unlawful for me to enter into this man's house, this Gentile, but not anymore. There's a connection being made between the food laws, don't eat what's unclean, and don't visit with those who are unclean. Conclusion, the purpose of the food laws was separation, Israel's separation from the nations. Now, that's five reasons takes a little time to get there. I, ho I hope you're convinced of that. I hope you understand that this is the purpose of these food laws. I hope I've, if you didn't already know that, I hope I persuaded you of that. But there's some deeper questions we have to ask, right? Some deeper questions we have to ask. And so I want us to consider a few questions now that dig a little deeper. Number one, why would God want to keep Israel separate from the nations? If that's what these food laws are about, why would God want to do that? And you you got you to be able to answer that. you got to be able to think through that and know why, why would God want to keep Israel separate from the nations? It's, is it that God has no love for the nations? No. We know that's not the reason. But rather, instead of God not having love for the nations, rather what we see is God is setting apart Israel in order to, uh, separating them, in order to raise up from them a Messiah for all nations. Why would he want to keep them separated from the nations? Because through them he's raising up a Messiah for all nations. God did not raise up Israel because of their superior morality 
or because of their superior strength. We've seen that in Deuteronomy. He tells them over and over again, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your strength that I'm bringing you to this land. So he doesn't raise them up for that purpose. So what's the purpose? Israel is meant to be an instrument through which he would reveal his Savior, his Messiah, his Christ. It's the purpose of these people. And if you understand, as I was talking about earlier, the storyline of the Bible then you get this. The storyline of the Bible, and let me try to summarize. Adam and Eve, so go back, way back to the beginning of Genesis. Go back to the beginning. And Adam and Eve had been told that through their lineage would come a Messiah, specifically one that would crush the serpent's head. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, was told that through his lineage would come a Messiah who would be born and bless the nations. It's about the lineage of these people. His son Isaac and his grandson Jacob were told the same thing. Through, there's promise, we can go read them, that through their lineage is going to come a Messiah. The whole Bible is moving in this direction. His great-grandson, Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, was given the same promise. An all-nations Messiah is coming through you. It's coming through this family. And through this family and through these promises came the nation of Israel. Abraham and his family multiplied, enslaved in Egypt, became a nation. They become the nation of Israel. And through that nation would be born a Messiah. This nation eventually would bring forth a king named David. And there was a promise to David that a Messiah would come through him who would be king forever. This is the storyline. It's all moving. The whole Bible is moving this direction of a Messiah that would come through these people we call Israel. And so the, the, the intactness of Israel... The, the genealogical records and, and, and them staying together and separate from the world. All of this shows us the reason for the nation. The reason for the nation was that a Messiah would be born. They're instruments to bring about the Christ. Now, towards the end of Israel's biblically recorded history, towards the end of it, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, listen to this. The people of Israel have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. Now that's being rebuked and it's going to be corrected. But you see that's the, that's the problem he's presenting here. That they have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. The holy race or holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Again, that's being rebuked and it's going to be corrected, but I want you to ask the question, they're called a holy seed. What makes them holy? What makes them holy? It's not their morality. You know, you've read it. You know it's not their goodness, their morality, their strength. That's not what made them holy. What set them apart was the purpose for which God had them. Through them was coming the Christ. Through them's coming the Messiah. Why keep them? Why keep these people from mixing with the nations? Why? Is it because they're better than the nations? No, it's because there's a purpose for these people. Through them, the, the, the head crusher of Satan has come. The all-nations blesser is coming. He's coming through them. This is the purpose. 
So brothers and sisters, when you read your Old Testament, when you read your Old Testament, realize that God is keeping Israel distinct from the nations. Why? For the sake of raising up his Messiah. And the dietary laws were a part of that. The dietary law, the food laws were a part of that. Now, second important question, and I, and I hope you're already starting to get a little bit of an answer to this question. But let me ask it anyways. Why then are the food laws no longer intact in the new covenant? Why, why are the food laws no longer in effect under the new covenant? Because, and I, I hope you see it already, because they, they, they fulfilled their purpose already with the coming of the Messiah. We're not still waiting on a Messiah to come. Christ Jesus has come. The Christ has come. And so the purpose of the food laws, keeping Israel distinct and set apart so the Messiah would come to the Well, he's come. Their purpose has been fulfilled. Christ Jesus has come. The one that was promised has come. He came out of Israel. He came out of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. He came to die for sinners, and that's exactly what he did. It's exactly what the Savior did. Listen to it. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, by his death, by his wounds, by his crucifixion, by him absorbing the wrath of God for us, we can be, it says, we have been healed. Then he rose from the dead, seated on high at the right hand of the throne of God to sit as king forever. And now, listen to me, now, now at this point, since the Messiah has already come, keeping Israel separate from the nations as his people, his national people, is no longer on God's priority list. God is sending his people to the, to the nations through his people, the church. Now, food laws. If they're for setting the people apart for the Messiah, the Messiah has come, it's fulfilled in Christ, then we glory in Christ. Not, not, but we glory in Christ not because, oh good, we can eat whatever we want now. It's not the way we look at these things. But we look at these things and we glory in Christ that look at God's work of bringing about a Savior and He's come, He's come, He's come. Glory to God, He's come. Now, I don't want to insinuate, I don't want to insinuate that, that God is, uh, doesn't want his church set apart from the world. Okay, I don't want to insinuate that because that's not right. He does want his church set apart from the world. But let me ask this last question. Let me present this last question. Is God still interested in his people, the church, being set apart from the world? And the answer is yes, but not nationally like the nation of Israel, 
not merely by external means like ceremonies and feast days or get this or dietary restrictions this is not the way God is setting apart his people the church he's interested in setting us setting us apart from the nations from the world in a different way and what way is that by the fear of the Lord by love for Christ by hearts that are fully given over to Christ and Christ alone. And man, them, those people are different. They're set apart to Christ. Their hearts burn with love for Jesus. By Christ's likeness in our actions and what we do in this life, the way we treat one another, the way we worship God, like he's setting us apart from the world in those ways. And here's one of the places I'm getting that from. 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, listen to this passage. Is God interested in setting apart his people, the church, from the world? Listen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said. And look, he's going to quote something from back here in Leviticus. And he's going to use it to encourage his church, which is what I'm trying to do now. He says this. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, does he want to separate it? Listen, therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, I'm still reading here, Beloved, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Does God want his people separate from the world? Yes, but not with food laws, not with ceremonies, but in these ways. A holy people set apart in their hearts, in their Christ-likeness, in their love for Christ and fear of the Lord, set apart from the world in these ways and as a light to the nations. Now, with that in view, with this whole idea in view, I want to highlight one more thing, one more piece of instruction from Deuteronomy chapter 14. So if you're not, if you flipped away from it, go back there. Deuteronomy chapter 14. I want to highlight one more thing here from this passage. And I want to highlight this. In Deuteronomy 14, God does not tell them, keep these food laws and be separate so that you will be my people. That's not what he says there. I wonder if you caught that. He doesn't say keep these dietary laws and be separate in order, in order that you would be my people or become my people. He does not say that in this passage. But what does he say? He says, you are my people. You are my treasured possession. Now be holy. Separate yourselves. And that, 
And that might sound like a light thing. You know, maybe you thought, what's the big deal, the difference? That's a massive difference. It's a massive difference. And you need to understand. Let me show you that in a passage. Verse 1 says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You see that? You shall not cut. And it says, look at verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Look at verse 21, right in the middle. You are a people to the Lord your God. So it's this, you are, you are, you are. God has done it. God has accomplished it. You belong to him. Now from that place, obey me. Be holy. Be separate. That's a lot different than be separate, be holy, so that you'll be my people. Now we've talked about this a lot in, in our church. Um, the imperatives of Scripture being rooted in the indicatives of Scripture. In other words, the dones come before the do's. The, the, it's already done in Christ. What Christ has done is the foundation, and our obedience flows out of what he's already done. Not do this so it'll be accomplished, but he accomplished it, now do this. And we see that all over the New Testament, right? And what I'm, and what I'm arguing here is that we get it shadowed for us here in Deuteronomy chapter 14. You are, you are, you are. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 21. You are, therefore, do. And so I want to close with that as hopefully an encouragement to us all. I want it to be an encouragement to us all. God is not calling us to be holy so that we can become his people. So Grace Community Church, not be holy so you can be his people, but rather God is saying this, Grace Community Church, in light of these facts, and just like, just like 2 Corinthians 6, he grabs Leviticus and applies it to the church. I'm doing the same thing here in Deuteronomy 14. I'm grabbing Deuteronomy 14, and I want to apply it to us, his church. Listen, these are facts about us as a church. This is done. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says, you are Sons of the Lord your God. He goes on, you are a people holy to the Lord. That's verse 2. This is accomplished in Christ. Still in verse 2, the Lord has chosen you. Do, you. do you feel that encouragement? He's chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Church, by what Christ has done, verse 21, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are, you are by, by the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. He's done this treasured possession of Christ. Therefore, and man, that's the encouragement from that place, brothers and sisters, be holy. Be set apart. Not by food laws. Not by food laws. But be set apart. Be holy. This Christian version of holiness rooted in what Christ has already done, rooted in what Christ has already accomplished, it will affect every, every area of your life. When you, when you know, here's what Christ has accomplished, you are, you are, you are, now be holy. It'll affect every area of your life. And so, and so maybe the New Testament version of this is whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, Think about what all is included in that. Whether you eat or whether you drink, 
whatever you do, from, from breakfast to ministry, it doesn't matter, whatever you do, it says, this is the last phrase, it says, do this, do all of this to the glory of God. Set apart because of what he's accomplished. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful plan of redemption, Lord, that you, that you plan and, 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 and you accomplish, Lord. Redemption is so glorious. Before time began, Lord, before humans ever existed, Lord, you have this eternal redemption, God. And it's your, it's your perfect plan. And we give you praise, God, that you even, you even give us insight into it right after man's plunged into sin through Adam, Lord. And you promise a Messiah that would crush Satan's head. We praise you for that, God. And we praise you for this unfolding of it throughout your word. And for raising up the nation of Israel, Lord, to bring about this Messiah, this Savior for all nations. We give you praise, God, for your redemption. And God, I pray that you would help us as, as you're redeemed. Those from all nations whom you've redeemed. God, that you would make us a people that see the work of Christ and are, and are full of affection and love and trembling and praise and shouts of joy and humble prayers. God, I pray that you would just fill us with that, that kind of response to what you've accomplished. Your work of redemption is glorious, God. Let us see it. Open our eyes to see it. And God, my prayer is that through seeing you in all your glory, God, that you would continually grow us as a holy people. That, that whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, God, that all of it, all, that it would, it would consume all of our lives, Lord, everything that we do and think and act on, Lord, that it would be consumed by glory to Christ, glory to Christ. Please help us, Lord. And thank you for these scriptures, Lord, to, to instruct us and, and, and goad us in those directions. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.